We are uh, fortunate that on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, we can observe what Rosh Hashanah is known for. In the Torah, we are told that Rosh Hashanah has two names. It's never referred to as Rosh Hashanah in the Torah itself. It is called Yom HaZikaron, the day of remembering. Hence the rabbinic idea of this being a process or the beginning of a period of tshuva, of repentance. The second name for it is Yom Tru'ah, the day of the shofar blowing. And so the shofar blowing is instituted as a central part of the identity of what this holiday is. And I want to share with you a thought before we have the opportunity, which we couldn't do yesterday, since we don't use musical instruments on Shabbat. I want to share a thought with you about the shofar itself. It comes from the introductory psalms that we read before the shofar is blown itself. On page 118, there are two psalms that are recorded that we read before. The second one begins like this. Out of my depths I called out to God, and he answered me and set me free. Yesterday I shared with you a story of one of my personal heroes, that being Dr. Viktor Frankl of blessed memory. In his book, the first one that he wrote, called Man's Search for Freedom, he tells about the moment that he was liberated from Auschwitz. He walked out of the gates and walked perhaps a half a kilometer into a quiet section of the forest. And he said he felt the expanse of the entire world. The sun was shining. The flowers were blooming. It was springtime, if you remember. The larks, the birds, he said, were flying overhead. And he collapsed to his knees. And he said he was broken. And then he lifted his eyes up and he took a breath. And he said these words. From the depths I called out to God. Anani. And you answered me. And you opened up my world. We read these words before the blowing of the shofar. Because as Frankel wrote, as he continued the story, he said, from that moment that I said those words, I began to take the steps towards what would eventually me becoming a human being once again. We come here to hear the shofar, understanding that throughout the course of the year, we take steps away from our beingness. This morning, as we hear those words, we take our steps back. Please rise. We're about to begin Musaf, which is the unique, in fact, the longest part of the Rosh Hashanah service. Usually, as I'm sure you well know, this part of the service can stretch on a traditional Rosh Hashanah in excess of 90 minutes, even more two hours. Musaf, but prayer in general, represents a question to us. The question is, why do we pray? The answer in part, I think, is found in asking another question. And that is, where do we find our souls? There was a marauding band or group of Muslims in the, in the Middle Ages. They were called Moors. The Moors basically had captured most of North Africa, and they made their way eventually crossing over the Iberian Peninsula to Spain. If you have ever been to southern Spain, 
to Malaga, Marbella, and whatnot, there were many remains of Moorish castles. And in fact, Moorish architecture comes from the Moors. Anyways, when the Moors, who spoke Arabic, when they made their way to Spain, they introduced something very unique to the Spaniards. Because when the Moors, whenever they would see a great piece of art, a great singer, a great dancer, anybody who displayed great capabilities, they would say, Allah, Allah, Allah being the Arab word for God, recognizing that in this great act of creativity, that there was a piece of God in that, that there was something soulful in it. Eventually, when the Spaniards heard the Moors saying, Allah, 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 it became disambiguated into Spanish. And the Spaniards began saying, Ole, Ole, Ole. Which is to say that there are things on the outside that can inspire us to realize that there's a power in this world that we can feel but we can't see. But we pray to remind ourselves that we don't need the outside to inspire that search. That there are things that we can see inside of ourselves to remind us of the things that we feel but we don't see which is the echo of the words of the great theologian Chardin. We pray because of Chardin's words. It was Chardin who said that there are those who think that we are physical beings having a spiritual experience, but he said those people are wrong. In truth, we are spiritual beings having a physical experience. This prayer, the Utana Tokef, strikes one of the prayerful high points when it asks who by fire and who by water, who by hunger and who by thirst, who by storm, who by plague. The questions, well, they have meaning for us because we know that life can both be cruel and beautiful, unpredictable and indeterminate. We know that we sit in the hand of uncertainty and while we pray and we wish for the best, we know that life will unfold as it is despite whatever we may wish for. There is a lot more I could say about this prayer, but this much I am sure of. The unknown person 800 years ago who wrote that prayer had been touched by life in a deep and painful way that only those of us who have lived life can understand. This prayer found new life in the oddest of places. The music that we're about to hear is connected to that moment. In 1973, the state of Israel was transformed by the Yom Kippur War. The pride and strength of the Six-Day War evaporated that day in the midst of sirens and panic. Streams of soldiers headed to the front lines, running out of synagogues to turn back the surprise attack by the Egyptian and Syrian forces. Of the thousands who left to fight were the young men of a small irreligious kibbutz named Beit Hashita. By the end of the war, 11 trucks would drive slowly through the main gates of the kibbutz. On each truck, there would be a coffin of the member of the kibbutz itself. The loss was beyond devastating for the small settlement because the loss of these 11 boys meant that everyone in the kibbutz had lost someone that they loved. Percentage-wise, no city, no community, no settlement or kibbutz has ever suffered a greater loss than Beit Shita did 
during the Yom Kippur War. While Yom Kippur in the past for the secular kibbutz had been a non-event, they now knew that something more was needed. Years later, one of Israel's greatest songwriters and a member of the kibbutz itself, Yair Rosenblum, sat down and decided that there was no need to make up something new to memorialize and sanctify the lives of those who had made the ultimate sacrifice. Rosenblum took this prayer, the one had been written by that anonymous writer centuries ago. And Rosenblum worked all night long without sleep, drenched in tears, and he reworked it. The music that you're about to hear came from that process. We're about to begin the uh, part of the Musaf service called the Avodah. It uh, recounts for us the style and signal way that the high priest would in fact worship in ancient times. The representation of how this prayer and how Rosh Hashanah was observed in ancient times is represented in one particular way when the Yelenu is sung. Once again, we're not at the end of the service, but it's incorporated in the Musaf itself. Rabbi and Cantor will bend down, prostrate themselves, much way the high priests would do it in ancient times. Why do we remember something that no longer applies to us? Why do we hold on a tradition that we don't observe but we only speak about? There's a story that I think communicates it best. It is written from the diary, the autobiography of Abba Kovner. Kovner was the commander of the Vilno Ghetto Uprising. He emigrated to Israel in 1947. He, in fact, testified in 1961 at the trial of Adolf Eichmann. He was an author and he was a poet. And he tells in 1947, in his first week in Israel, before the state was announced, before the old city of Jerusalem had been closed off to Jews, he made his way to the old city. He went to the Western Wall. And he stood astride away from the stones. And he was touched by the historicity and the sanctity of it. But he didn't really feel that that was a part of his world because he lived in a secular one. He was about to walk away and a man grabbed his arm and the man asked him, would you help us make a minion? Kovner wasn't part of that world, as I said, but he couldn't say no. So he put a hat on and he made the minion. He was the 10th. And he even davened, he prayed with them. Later on, he would go on to say that in many respects, that is the most important identity of a Jew, that we are all part of a minion, and that none of it works if we all don't work to make it work. Kovner reminds us that we, when we remember collectively what came before us, it continues to live through us. It's been said that the Jews were not the first people to develop the wheel, the spear, speaking, writing, or even storytelling for that matter, but perhaps what the Jews discovered was the idea of meaning. So I have two stories to conclude this morning with that I want to share with you that explain how we find meaning. The first is from Elie Wiesel. He's also here in the sanctuary with us, in image alone. He wrote of being Israel after the Second Day War. It's hard to remember, but the weeks before the war, the Arab countries surrounding Israel were massing on our border. Massive airlifts of weapons and ammunition were being sent from the Soviet Union to those Arab countries. Arab radio was filled with the calls to wipe every Jew from the land and to drive them into the sea. Just 20 years after the Holocaust, it looked as if 
it was about to happen again. Six days later, it was all over. In a daring preemptive strike, Israel destroyed the armies of Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Saudi Arabia. Not long after, Elie Wiesel was at the Western Wall in Jerusalem and he met a Holocaust survivor. The Jews gathered in mass waves around the wall that had been closed to them for more than 20 years. Wiesel stood at the wall and wondered aloud, how could such a small country with such a small army defeat so many? And the survivor said to him, Ellie, because they weren't alone. They had six million souls along with them. To remember is to understand that we are messengers carrying a message that came before us. In remembering that we are part of a larger story, we discover a meaning for ourselves. The second story also takes place in Jerusalem, this time just outside the old city, on Hart Sion on Mount Zion. You have to go there to the Roman Catholic Cemetery, and there you'll be looking for one grave. I know it's not common for Jews to go to Roman Catholic cemeteries, least of all in Israel, but this one you must go to. The grave that you're looking for is easy to find. There are thousands of graves there, but this one will be easy for you to find because it is the only one that is covered in stones. It is the grave of Oscar Schindler. And that is because of all the Jews who come and visit the grave, they place stones on the marking of this man who by his choice saved the lives of 1,200 people. They observe the custom of placing a stone on top of his stone and thereby they tell the world that Oscar Schindler will be remembered by the Jewish people, that he will not be forgotten. By his own admission, Schindler was a war profiteer, a drunkard, and a womanizer. But when the moment came, Schindler was an example of what all the others didn't do. When I go to Israel with students, I always bring them to Schindler's grave. His history is a reminder of the crimes of others need not be our crimes, that our task is not to go the way that everyone else goes, that the moral choice, our greatest lesson, is where we find our greatest meaning.